0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohen is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program... Please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. You may have noticed <clears throat> that there was not an Acton Unwind episode the last two weeks. Please accept our apologies for that. We had people at Acton going every which way all at once. We will be coming back to that. Uh, it was a bit difficult to get enough people together at the same time to do an episode. But we thank you for sticking with us, and we're glad you're back and on your podcast feed. I'm joined today by Dylan Palman, Acton Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and Stephen Barrows, Chief Operating Officer of the Acton Institute. This week, we'll be discussing the moral and economic implications of fake Drake and the problems of everything bagel liberalism. But first to Texas, where legislation has been introduced to address increasing housing costs. Jared Meyer, writing in Forbes, Sets the table nicely. Uh, Texas has done such a great job of attracting residents and businesses that some negative side effects of this success are starting to show. Consider high housing prices, which hit public sector workers in major cities such as police officers, firefighters, and teachers especially hard. Thankfully, the Texas legislature is considering a variety of reforms this legislative session to ensure that the state remains a top destination to build a career and raise a family. And in typical Texas, Style. They're doing it through reforms that embrace the free market. HB 921 slash SB. 1787, sponsored by Representative Goldman and Senator Betancourt, lowers the minimum required residential lot size in large municipalities, similar to bills recently advanced in Montana. In other words, the bill allows developers to get permits to build houses on smaller lots, which would lower housing costs by increasing supply in high-cost areas." Meyer points out some good reasons to believe that such a policy would have a positive effect, noting that, quote, "...about 25 years ago, Houston reduced its minimum lot size for central neighborhoods from 5,000 to 1,400 square feet. The policy was so successful that Houston extended the lower minimum lot size to outer neighborhoods in 2013. Far from leading to tiny rundown shacks, this change coincided with only about a one-tenth decrease in home sizes. What did shrink?" were the yards, which many people do not value and when land is expensive, and the prices, which this uh, change cut by 20% over a decade. San Antonio's minimum lot size within the loop is already below the bill's sponsored level of, uh, of uh, 1,250 square feet. Alternatively, Austin, where the housing crisis is worst, had a minimum lot size of 5,750 square feet. Gentlemen, we have been plagued, sort of the modern cost disease that we see in, in education, housing, and healthcare. These are all intensely regulated sectors of the economy. Um, and we're starting to see some really positive changes in the housing front in both Montana and now with this bill being introduced in Texas. There's also another bill uh, – Sponsored for the upcoming Texas legislative session about uh, sort of legalizing the sort of mother-in-law apartments like smaller units in in the backyards of residences um, What do you make of these developments? Uh, first, you know, is this? the right direction and second um, Are there are there sort of moral implications to this sort of policy? So
1: maybe I'll begin with some of the economic uh, dimensions of this. And you know, as a general rule, the deregulating of housing uh, burdens and construction bur- burdens and so forth is, is critical to being able to supply to match what, uh, what, what people need in a particular metropolitan area. And you, you highlighted it when you said it's going to more than likely increase the supply. And you know there are uh, areas, especially on the coast, where this is even more urgent and you can find places like uh, San Francisco where it's just uh, virtually impossible to get around some of the bureaucratic hurdles to create a new construction or making sure that it complies with whatever the latest uh, nimbyism, not my backyardism, that happens in these regions. And in the end, I think that uh, what we're seeing here in Texas uh, hopefully will be replicated across other uh, portions of the country. You know, when you think about it, this is becoming even more urgent for a variety of reasons. Um, right now, we're seeing uh, a... A decline in people's willingness to vacate their homes or sell them because typically people who have been in, in the housing, in a, in a home, uh, have been able to lock in a very low interest rate. Okay, yeah. And now interest rates are increasing. And so when interest rates are increasing, people don't want to give up their low interest rate and have to move and find another location and get a higher interest rate mortgage. So the way you resolve some of that uh, lack of churn in the housing market is not going to be through trying to figure out a way to get people to sell their homes, but it's really going to be by creating new construction. And so to the extent that you can remove some of the bureaucratic and regulatory hurdles that prevent and deter new construction, that's the first step and even more urgent now, I think, given what's happening with interest rates.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you see, particularly, you know, Montana and Texas are two examples where you've got a lot of population transfer from other states into those states. We face different challenges in Michigan. Um, we got net migration out of the state, but it's particularly crucial for these states that are experiencing stark population increases.
2: Yeah, and i I would definitely echo that. I think any any policy that can encourage the building of more homes is really key to solving our crisis and and this comes up on uh the the bottom income side a lot there's advocacy for we need more low-income housing and that sort of thing and i think in some cases that 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 there might be a place for that Um, but some of it i think is actually just a symptom of our very bad regulatory environment so part of it is things like you know restrictions on lot sizes like like they're dealing with in texas some of it is our tariffs on canadian lumber and you know ridiculous things like that that are making the cost of building materials uh, prohibitive um But if you increase supply of houses, it doesn't matter if you build more mansions, there will be more houses. Um, And if there are more houses, someone who is in the half a million dollar house, who their income has grown over the last 10 years or whatever, might start looking at a million dollar house. Well, then what do they do? They sell their half a million dollar house. So then somebody, so on and so forth. I hate to use the term because it has a bit of a stigma to it, but there really, genuinely, honestly is a trickle down effect. To this. Um, and that's a great thing. And it's not even just home ownership. So, uh, rents track with home prices. Um, and in fact, that's one of the, the things not told. So, we, um there's a there's a, a homeowner uh, tax credit um, that actually is kind of a wash like it's good for sellers. It's, you know, buy or it's, Yeah. it's it, But all it does is jack up home prices, basically, because people factor in the, t- the the tax credit into the price of the house. Um, and so it's kind of a wash for home owners and sellers. Um, but it's not a wash for renters because the price of living goes up. And so the price of rents go up. Um so even if someone uh is not going to be able to buy their own home in the next 5 or 10 years it may still benefit their 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 cost of shelter. Um it may still benefit the person who is on the edge and is really worrying about how am I going to afford uh you know to to make my rent payment whatever. What well, suddenly you look around and if 10% of your renters are now homeowners Now you have 10% more stock in the apartment, in the renting, you know, or or other kind of rental uh, market, and the price is going to drop because the, the demand won't quite be there, and the people who want to rent those properties are going to have to lower the rates in order to attract renters. So this is something that is huge and there's absolutely a moral side to it people need shelter right um that's where you know the the motivation behind we need to build more low income housing sort of thing usually with a lot of government subsidies that kind of thing i don't think that would be necessary if we had a different regulatory environment um and if we if we just made building more uh, forms of shelter, preferably really high quality <laughs> ones rather than, I mean, some of the stuff uh, it, it does turn out okay, but it's kind of a mixed bag as far as the low income um, designated stuff. Um, and uh, I think I think it's huge, and I, I really hope the rest of the country takes notice, and I hope that people realize that there's actually a lot more we could be doing than even what's going on in Texas.
0: So what what are the common objections you get to policies like this, policies that increase density, is, you know, Stephen brought up San Francisco, and, you know, I think most Americans of a certain age, probably Dylan and I's age or older, remember the show Full House, which has this very, you know this, you know, two-story house on this hill with a view of the golden gate bridge and it's this beautiful family style home that the family stacks people in like cordwood, you know, like the uncles in the basement, the other uncles in the attic with his wife and two kids. And um, there's interesting tensions in Full House itself, noting that this is a phenomenon that 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 sort of housing causes. But there's a lot of people that, you know, they fear their neighborhood will turn into megacity one and that you'll have, you know, these giant brutalist concrete structures go up and people will be warehoused like cordwood. What do you say to those folks who see this as threatening to an aesthetic sensibility or a lifestyle that they feel they've cultivated, that they feel that they bought into and all of a sudden rules change and their neighborhoods may change?
1: Well, there, I mean, there is a certain dimension of this where if the rules change midstream, uh, then suddenly that's a risk you have to assume as a homeowner, right? What are the rules of the game now versus what they could be during a different regulatory regime? So it applies to all sorts of avenues or aspects of our life. You know, something you could think of by way of analogy is technology is also disruptive, right? So somebody does something, they invest. Next thing you know, they find out that their investment's not as worth as much as they used to think that it would be. So there is a risk that has to be calculated as you sort of unwind the regulatory apparatus. But one of the things I think is that you have um, other kinds of trade-offs when these things happen. And yes, you could have a trade-off where suddenly a neighborhood or a certain aspect of a city suddenly becomes much more... Population dense traffic becomes far worse. It creates other kinds of negative externalities, as it were. Uh, but that also then will enter into the pricing mechanism. People will then begin to calculate uh, whether or not it's it's so bad that they don't even want to move. And so the pricing mechanism that responds to this new increase in supply, whatever the trade offs might be, is going to be a factor that people will consider. So I think you have to recognize that that the pricing mechanism will kick in and start to mitigate those those secondary side effects.
2: Yeah. Um. You know, I would echo, uh, I guess, uh, getting this somewhat secondhand, but... One of the insights of uh, Jane Jacobs is the idea that cities are organisms; that they're they're constantly growing. There's a certain if you don't if 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 you let natural forces, uh, you know, human behavior work, um, nothing stays the same. Not even a building. You know, we live, we work in a building which is radically different than when it was first built. Um, And then, as it changed ownership, it changed and it changed. We currently have a, a beautiful auditorium here in our basement. We had to dig down to make that happen, uh, to make the, the basement actually deeper. Um, and that happens with cities. Um, and, yeah, some of it you're going to like, some of it you're not going to like. Um, I would say uh, I would encourage everyone uh, to have a good aesthetic practice of memento mori and just remember that death is a part of life, that change happens. Um, and, you know, I the other thing is I think on the West Coast, those sorts of complaints um I, I get the idea of while well, I bought in and I, I was thinking this, okay, sure, but at some point people got to get over themselves, right? People over there, most people, and perhaps even the same people are complaining about shanty towns of homeless people. Uh, and if you had more housing, theoretically, you could probably have less homeless people. Um, it's not, you know, beyond Econ 101 to think the more houses you have, the fewer people without homes you probably wound up having. Um you can repurpose, you know, some of the, the neighborhoods where people want to move out. And now maybe that could be, uh, you know, the start of some kind of ministry or social service or something like that uh, to help people who, who really have lost their way. Um, obviously, there's a lot. More factors that go into that addiction, mental health, things like that. But, um, but this would suddenly give people resources to work with that they currently don't have, um, in, in a very tragic, uh, way that's very, very visible, um, for people living in those cities. So I don't know. I, I don't, I don't really get the not in my backyard excuse when the same people don't want shanty towns in their backyard. Well, yeah, probably better, um, you know, RoboCop or uh, no, not RoboCop, sorry, Judge <laughs> Dredd um, than, uh, then, uh, you know, Mad Max or what, whatever the other equivalent would be. Um, so, I mean, sure, you don't want to pick and choose between dystopias. Uh, hopefully uh, we can get somewhere better than that. But um, you do got to start somewhere. Hopefully, hopefully we'll just get to the utopia, a full house once again, right? I mean, that was the 90s and that was a full house. Um, how much fuller must the houses be now? In fact, we know because Fuller House uh, was reprised at one point uh, a few years ago.
0: So, because this is this is this is politically a sticky wicket. This is a public choice sticky wicket because you have homeowners that are invested in the prices of their homes, and. You know, you look at that data, let's say looking at Houston, and you're like, oh, there's this real decline in home prices of of 20% over this period of time. That's great for folks on the margins, folks who wouldn't – for new entrants into the market, for folks that had previously been priced out of the market. And that's where I think, you know, you have to make a long-term case. You have to make both a moral case that people should have access – To affordable housing and to erect barriers there is to set up a system of privilege of people who entered the market earlier, of people of natives versus new transplants to areas, all that sort of thing. But you also have to look, you know, long term, you know, you have cities, particularly in Michigan, particularly on the east side of the state that have been depopulating for a long time. That you have now, you know, government programs. I know in Genesee County uh, has a land bank where, you know, if you have a vacant lot next to you, the city will sell it to you for a dollar. Like they're trying to contract the density. Um, And you run a risk if you try to perpetuate what's always been. The world is going to change outside of the housing market. Larger structural changes in the economy in You know, and emerging markets, new centers of talent, and you can wind up with very troublesome problems on the back end if your city does not remain vibrant and open to new developments. So I think that that longer term view is also necessary. That's right. We turn now from very real public policy to a very fake Drake, uh, our new over AI overlords have never sounded so smooth as uh, Joe Scott Coscarelli reports in the New York Times, quote, for Drake and The Weeknd, two of the most popular musicians on the planet, the existence of the song Heart on My Sleeve, a track that claimed to use AI versions of their voices to create a passable mimicry, may have qualified as a minor nuisance, a short-lived novelty that was easily stamped out by their powerful record company. But for others in the industry, the song, which became a viral... A sensation on social media, racking up millions of plays across TikTok, Spotify, YouTube, and more before it was removed uh, this week, represented something more serious, a harbinger of the headaches that can occur when new technology crosses over into the mainstream consciousness of creators and consumers before the necessary rules are in place. Heart on My Sleeve was the latest and loudest example of the gray area genre that has been exploding in recent months, homemade tracks that use generative artificial intelligence technology in part or in full to conjure familiar sounds that can be passed off as authentic or at least close enough. It earned instant comparisons to earlier technologies that disrupted the music industry, including the dawn of the synthesizer, the sample, and the file-sharing service Napster. Yet while AI Rihanna singing a Beyoncé song or AI Kanye West doing Hey There, Delilah may seem like a harmless lark, the successful, if brief, arrival of Heart on My Sleeve on official streaming services, complete with shrewd online marketing from its anonymous creator, intensified alarms that were already ringing in the music business, where corporations have grown concerned about AI models learning from and then diluting their copyrighted material. We've talked about intellectual property on this program before. We've talked a lot about AI, and it seems every week there's a new application that is concerning to some people and uh, liberated and emancipatory to others. What do you make of this latest round of AI's entry into the music business?
2: I'm still, I think, probably crystallizing my thoughts on the issue. Um, but I do think it's helpful to look at... Um, parallels uh, in terms of borrowing and copying of material now obviously this is uh, these are new productions these songs but they're using someone's likeness so we, we actually have laws in place so if you ever watch the show cops for example um, a lot of times the uh, alleged and often very obvious uh, criminal uh, their face will be blurred um, why because they even the criminal or the uh, accused criminal, has some rights to their likeness. Um, so I I don't think it's even the case that we live in a world where there is no such rules of the game here. We just need to realize which, which rules exist. Um, uh, another great example is uh, plagiarism uh, and cases over that, especially in music. Um, so currently right now, uh, one of the big cases is uh, Ed Sheeran. Um, uh for the song, uh the title of which I has already escaped me. But uh the not Marvin Gaye himself, but his the estate of his co-writer for the song Let's Get It On is suing Ed Sheeran for plagiarism. Um if you compare the songs, same chord progression, very similar sound to it. The melody, very, very similar. Um and there's whole videos on YouTube. In fact, there's one or two that I would recommend, and maybe we'll we'll drop in the links. Uh, there's this guy, Adam Neely, who does music theory and analysis, and he gets into the complexities of this sort of thing. Um, on the one hand, uh, if you want to write a song in a specific genre um, with music— very often that means you've got just a few chord progressions to choose from. You've got just a few beats to choose from because if you alter that stuff too much, suddenly it's not an R&B song anymore. It's some other kind of song. And so uh, it's very common for artists to borrow from each other, to... um, Allude to reference others, so you know that that would be maybe uh, in defense of Ed, Ed Sheeran. You could say, "Well, it's an R and song. Of course, he likes Marvin Gaye." Um, there's even, in fact, a, a performance of him going from his song right into Marvin Gaye's "Let's Get It On" uh, because there's so it's so easy to do that. Um, so uh, that that complicates the issue. On the other hand, um, and this was brought up in the article, there is, of course, a tradition of, frankly, white people using music and musical genres and, and tropes and themes established by non-white artists and getting really big with it. Um, and we can talk about, you know, is, is there an issue of, of justice or credit at the very least that should go into this? Um, what I thought was really interesting about uh, Adam Neely in particular, and I, I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but I think he's maybe at least starting a good conversation. He actually appeals to John Locke uh, and he tries to get into, you know, property rights of, you know, I think, I believe, first Homesteading yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, he, and he talks about how modern songs, especially, you know, I, when I think of songs just because of my musical taste, I think of like a band or a single singer songwriter. Um, whereas, you know, modern songs, you look at, who they're by and the credits. And sometimes you have 20 names there, right? Because you had a whole team of producers to come up with the beat and to to sample different portions. Sampling is another example, especially in hip hop. There's a whole history of working out the legality of borrowing even just two bars of someone else's song and putting it on loop. Um, this is something that uh, Vanilla Ice got into some very big trouble for and the Beastie Boys somehow didn't um, with Paul's Boutique. But uh, th- this this kind of thing, again, the music industry has some precedence for sorting this out. Um, and so his whole point was, well, why can't we just find a way to add more names? You know, And, and the idea would be then they get some sort of cut um, of the royalties. Whereas I think that if we just end up In the case of a a plagiarism situation, that's a case where um, a a really interesting example would be the Verve's song, Bittersweet Symphony. Have you ever heard (laughs) that song? Their most famous song. Do you know that they get zero dollars for that song? Uh, Because the current uh, credit goes to, I believe, uh, Mick Jagger. It does. And and, uh, Keith Richards, uh, who... Actually, did not write the part. They sampled a string section, so an arrangement made by a producer uh, for a version of the song that was then never released. Uh, so they, it was it was like this whole weird sort of story where they found this cool string part from a Rolling Stones song. They sampled it. They didn't get proper permission. They tried to get permission too. It's like they they didn't act like they did, and I believe that like Keith Richards and. Uh, and Mick Jagger were, like, fine with it, and it's just the producer that sued them. But anyway, I think they sorted it out, and they actually, like, the Rolling Stones even gave them some royalties eventually, at, you know, gave them back some at some point. But, but this is the sort of thing that happens where when you lose this kind of plagiarism case, even when people tried really hard to, like, abide by the rules, um, they lose all credit to their own song. And they really wrote that song in that case. I mean, yes, they borrowed a string part, but other than that, it was all their words, their melody, everything, you know, doesn't sound like a Rolling Stones song at all. Um, so there's some squishiness with music because, like I said, you know, fitting in a genre, that kind of thing, or just the fact that, you know, chord prog- there's only so many chord progressions and people are going to reuse those and, and reimagine them. And sometimes you do it to pay honor to artists who went before you, who influenced you. Um, but it does get sticky and there at least is a, a legal tradition and legal precedent for sorting some of the stuff out. And I think AI might be best served by consulting some of those precedents, um, because to some degree, you might have people that just say, hey, look at this cool thing I made with AI, and then they put it up on, on social media or you know YouTube or whatever, and it goes viral, and suddenly they're getting a bunch of you know hits, and that gives them some YouTube royalties or whatever, and it's this great windfall for this young creator or something like that. And then suddenly they get slapped with a lawsuit by some big, powerful record company or artist, and um, there's got to be some middle ground. There's got to be some way to say, okay, yeah, Drake has a right to his voice. Of course, right? Um, but how can we adjudicate this without just completely turning off this new technology and whatever sort of creativity might come out of this as well?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think this is a great example of technology outpacing the legal framework to uh, to, to just set the boundaries of what's permissible or not. I think entertainment law is eventually going to adapt to Uh, the reality of what this technology does provide and opportunities for people and ensuring that individuals who uh, have a right to their voice are compensated for whatever use of the voice is. What I'm concerned about is one of the things that this implies for overtly illegal behavior. So Wall Street Journal, uh, Joanna Stern had a great article and, uh, and video article where she talked about her experiments in uh, using ChatGPT GPT, and other uh, AI servicing uh, firms to try to replicate her appearance and voice in video and voice uh, imaging. And uh, and they were successful to varying degrees, and she would put it through different experiments to see whether or not it could trick, say, uh, a voice confirmation system for your bank, et cetera. Uh, but already, uh, she indicates that the Federal Trade Commission is putting out warnings about scams that are being used by hijacking somebody else's voice, somebody of credibility, and using those scams to trick people into doing things they wouldn't otherwise do. So as this technology matures, um, I think it's going to be more and more effective. We always already know about you know, deep fake videos and so forth. And so I think it provides an interesting uh, um, caution about how we need to uh, uh, approach this technology and what its uh, potential trade-offs are going forward.
0: So there's also, you know in crisis, there is opportunity. And I was thinking about uh, Deep Space Nine recently, the classic uh, Star Trek series in which there's a hollow program named Vic Fontaine who is essentially a Frank Sinatra, sort of Dean Martin sort of figure and he performs music, you can go to his lounge, these sorts of things we've seen, uh, there was the uh, Tupac Shakur hologram uh, some years back there are now opportunities um, for Estates to resurrect dead artists. There's also arbitrage opportunities for current artists. Um, the I don't know if she's a house. I don't know what you would call her, if it was a house musician. But Grimes uh, said that uh, she was uh, totally up for people using her voice, provided there be a 50% split on the royalties. So now you have opportunities for artists to generate more content through this sort of technology either themselves or to come to contractual arrangements with others um it's it's an exciting time for the music industry not 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 just perils uh but also some promise in there
2: so i i did have something to add uh i i think for me there's another side to this and there's so there's not only the morality in terms of creating um, and writing and producing that sort of thing but there's also a a consumption side so let's say that you're like a really big drake fan and you feel like man drake's getting ripped off here the solution to me is go see drake right because the ai ai can produce all sorts of you know, imitation and maybe even very good, uh, you know, deep fake versions of new songs, that sort of thing. But nothing beats actually going to see an artist perform their work uh, in person, live. Um, I I think maybe we'll find, hopefully not with uh, too strong of a Luddite bent, but I I think hopefully we'll see a little bit of a a swing as we have in terms of, um, you know, we got, MP3s, we got digital files and suddenly we got this big boom of vinyl at the same time. Why? Cuz some people just really want they want to be able to put it down and hear the needle scratch and actually like get that analog sound. And I wonder if there'll be a little bit of a, you know, to to bend the the meaning of the word a little bit, but a, an analog revolution in music that suddenly people just want I want I want to hear a guitar and drums and voice that are all in the room and I know that's those real live people and that there's we suddenly realize that there's something unique about all of the flaws you know it's like a uh, how do you tell that a diamond is real Uh, you look for the flaw right Um, AI uh, is like uh, cubic zirconium uh, when it comes to music (laughs) right and that's not bad Uh, some people that's that's a really great thing they can get uh, some beautiful jewelry for someone they love because of that technology Um, but if you want the real thing Um, you got to be okay with some of those flaws and you got to find the mediums in which those flaws still present themselves live performance being one and perhaps um, you know certain uh, uh, instrumentation and recording uh, that has of late gone out of fashion and
1: frankly if I could just speak for myself in this case uh, for you know being a fan of say someone like Sting I would find an AI generated Sting song to be an interesting novelty but I would not be a repeat listener (laughs) Because I would, there would be something inauthentic about it, and I just would think, oh, well, that's kind of created this person produced a Sting song, but it's just not Sting.
0: <laughs> there, there's a great portion in this, in this New York Times write-up of this story that uh, we, uh, we'll link to in the show notes um, where there was an artist, uh, a musician, uh, Holly Herndon. Uh, who had studied and used AI for her work for years, um, she made this interesting observation that I think resonates with, with what both of you are saying. She said, It is now possible to produce infinite media in the style or likeness of someone else, soon with little effort. So we all have to come to terms with what that means. The question is, as a society, do we care what Drake really feels? Or is it enough to just hear a superficially intelligent rendering? For some people, that will not be enough. However, when you consider that most people listening to Spotify are doing so just to have something pleasant to listen to, <laughs> it complicates things yeah. we There is a market for Muzak in addition <laughs> to music um, right. and while and while i think I think there is there will always be that market for that authenticity for uh, for that, there, there, there might be uh, exploding opportunities in Muzak reaching beyond uh, elevator space.
1: And by the way, it could become a complementary good, yes. right? So you might find somebody that are first introduced to an artist by not the artist, but an artificial intelligence uh, spinoff yeah. of that artist. And then they say, oh, that's actually pretty good. I want to re- listen to the real thing. So uh, there is a potential there that's a positive back to the original artist.
0: From AI moral quandaries and economic opportunities, let's turn to strained analogies in public policy. This sort of brings us back full circle. Last week, Matt Iglesias uh, on his Substack Slow Boring brings up a thread his former colleague, Ezra Klein, pulled the beginning of last month in the New York Times, coining the phrase everything bagel liberalism to describe unfocused policy coming out of many progressive circles which seeks to attain every policy objective all the time, all at once. The piece raised the ire of many bagel lovers as well as progressives. There was a whole... Active online dispute about the merits of everything bagels and what makes an everything bagel what it is. Iglesias points out that the analogy is not just about bagels, but it's a reference to uh, the Academy Award winning film Everything everywhere all at once, whose plot features an everything bagel, quote-unquote, that includes literally all of the multi-dimensional metaphysical possibilities. Contemplating this totality induces paralysis and insanity and drives the plot of this film forward. Iglesias relates this to sort of some of the Biden-era policies, uh where he talks about this is not as catchy as saying that the Biden administration needs to avoid the temptations of everything bagel liberalism. But I think it's probably more accurate to say that rigorous policy analysis has become underrated and that Biden in particular should listen to some uh, to orthodox economists and economics. Um, When we talk about this in terms of housing policy, we touched on this, you know, people want Oh, it can't just be building more houses. It has to be, there has to be a certain allotment of affordable housing. And a certain number of the contractors have to be uh, from businesses that are minority owned. And all of the construction has to be carbon neutral. And what ends up happening is no new housing gets built, or negligible amounts of housing, or cost overruns make the housing maybe affordable on the one end, but on, on the end for consumers, but involve massive t- tax subsidies and government waste to implement. Uh, Iglesias continues, the basic fact that multiple objectives will dilute the efficacy of a subsidy program is one thing that might pop out of uh, dis- serious engagement with economics. But the same basic issue recurs in other areas. The White House continues to fight out in court over student loan forgiveness – over a student loan forgiveness program whose now obsolete premise was that the uh, country needed economic stimulus. We're well past that point. This is something that I'm seeing increasingly on the right as well with calls for industrial policy that feature, you know, we want to – build a bridge, but we want it with all American materials. And we want to make sure that, you know, no woke companies get their hands on any of this public money, etc. cetera. How do we think through about what makes effective public policy and how do we engage with sort of the varying political constituencies that all make demands on policy makers that uh, their agendas be incorporated into any given policy?
1: Well, my first thought when reading through Klein's article was that he's drawn attention to something that has become more evident in recent years, but it's actually not anything particularly new. Uh, I would argue that in many respects, everything bagelism has, has has occurred, at least since the Great Depression, right? Where suddenly there's all these objectives that the state wants to pursue, and there's just a fundamentally different perspective on what the state is there for. And, uh, and then you try to accomplish everything and everything, and it just continues to grow after every major crisis. So, um, yes, he did say that we, you know, just because we do have such a thing as depression economics means that uh, we don't suddenly, uh, you know, Continue. We don't have to feel compelled to continue the so-called depression economics when we're out of the depression, but unfortunately, that typically happens. And so, uh, you know, in the end, policy is very complex because you're dealing with a political apparatus, you're dealing with different constituencies and oftentimes competing goals. And I think it's not surprising at all that oftentimes those goals conflict with one another. (laughs)
2: At the risk of, of straining this a bit, I think uh, the responsibility of any good housing policy is to increase the number of houses in housing, um, and we should look at anything that uh, is conducive towards that as good, or at least as serving that purpose, um, and anything that detracts from that as bad, whatever the framing of uh, the you know the the causes involved. Um, I think we should care about, you know, things like uh, minority-owned companies and whatnot. Um, Certainly, we don't want um, a policy uh, where the government says, okay, we're only going to use white-owned companies. Yeah, that would be terrible, right? (laughs) But if it's just simply we're going to use whatever company is going to give us the best deal for the highest quality product— that's the way it should be. And everyone has an opportunity if that is the criteria. Um, throwing in all of these other things into whatever the policy is, whether it's housing, environment, all these kinds of things. Um, it, I mean, I, I just I more or less agree, not with every detail, but when when Iglesias you know, talks about how, you know, even subsidies, something that I, I generally am against uh, on principle, Um if you're going to do a subsidy, it should be as hyper-focused as possible. It should not be. We're going to have a subsidy for everything. Subsidy for everything is ultimately kind of a subsidy for nothing. Um, so if you're going to distort the market, distort it really well. <laughs> um, focus on on doing that, and better better yet, just deregulate it and let the market work uh, where that is feasible. And the something like a problem like housing is exactly one of those areas in our economy. Um, so. Yeah, and I, the whole everything bagel thing. Yeah, it's it maybe a little bit of a strained metaphor, but I look at, and maybe this is just my own, uh, you know, bias. Uh, but I don't think I, I think I think Joe Biden has always been an everything everything bagel. At least as far as I have encountered him, um, you know, look at his campaigns, at least his more recent ones. It's always we're gonna. We're gonna clean up the environment. We're gonna get people back to work. Well, we're also gonna cure cancer. Like he literally said he's gonna cure cancer. Like he everything that anybody could want. I mean, to some degree this kind of gets in the way of uh Maybe it wasn't Iglesias. No, this was a uh, Roy Wood Jr. Uh, at the Qu- White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner over the weekend. Uh, comedian Roy Wood Jr. he he gave his little monologue, and one of the things he said is, "What you're supposed to do, uh, not I don't actually recommend people doing this, but he said like politicians know what you're supposed to do is promise people a ton of great stuff and then not deliver on any of it. <laughs> um, and that I mean that's stuff, something that Joe Biden's really good at, and that's something that everything bagelism is all about, um, not to. Uh, gosh, that'll let's hope that doesn't catch on. Um, but uh, uh, it is something that's really, really tempting. Um, but I, I do wonder, and I think I, I would be interested to see if we if if we don't have such a contentious election, which it looks like we maybe will. So maybe this won't be a good test case in twenty twenty four. But. Eric Cohn, our director of communications, talks all the time that if your audience is everyone, then your audience is no one, um, that that whatever your product is, it's not going to sell because you just can't possibly please everyone. Um, and I do think there's uh, a huge danger, especially on the left right now, but it's growing on the right, as you pointed out, of trying to craft policy that's just going to serve every possible interest group, at least within your you know side of the political spectrum. Um, and- I don't know that that's the way that you actually build a winning coalition. I certainly don't think, and I agree with Iglesias, it's not the way you actually solve real problems in the real world. I think you got to tackle them one at a time. You got to have focus. You got to have actual understanding of the problem. And you should care about other things. But we should understand that any given moment, certain things are going to be more important than other things. Um, And certain things are going to have different short and long-term impact. And there are people who are really good at helping us calculate those things. They're called economists. And maybe we should talk to more of them when we craft our policy. Um, and yes, you can talk to too many. He pointed out Obama maybe getting a bit too wonky uh, in some of his policy. Um, but, uh, I would rather err on that side of things, I suppose, um, that we're trying to take all of those considerations into account. Um, and frankly, I, I I would say he probably put Obama in too big of a light because there's a little bit of everything bagelism going on there as well, as uh, Steve pointed out, probably since the Great Depression with every every politician.
0: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm refreshed that, that somebody, you know, so often our our, our political solutions are let's subsidize demand. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, no one wants this. And then we wind up with the situation we have in education, in healthcare, and in in housing. And there are, there are structural market reforms that I think can address these sorts of things. But if you are going to do policy interventions, you need an economist to look at this so you don't wind up with the – Let's just subsidize demand.
1: Yeah, th- thanks for twice invoking economists at being one myself. But I, I, w- I will say one, of the, one thing economists will always tell you is that when you're seeking to maximize some objective, it's always subject to various constraints. And if you don't constrain yourself in other areas, you're oftentimes going to work against the very thing you're trying to maximize. So if somebody says, I want to maximize my well-being while minimizing my expenditures in my in my own personal budget – Well, actually, those two things are working against each other. If you want to minimize your expenditures, they're zero. And if you're spending nothing, you're not going to have any well-being, right? So you have to subject yourself to some kind of a constraint, right? And say, I'm going to try to do the best I can within a certain kind of budget I allocate to myself. And I think the same thing holds, generally speaking, for public policy. Identify what the most important goals are and then allow the others to just be constraints that you operate under.
0: Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search for Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dylan. Thanks to Stephen. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger. We'll see you next week.